Well, it's a great privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. We're reading from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and the reading this morning really came out of um, the sermon that Richard gave a few weeks ago on casting the nets on the other side. Uh, And it sort of drove me to Scripture to to look at some of the the many passages that deal with mission and outreach. And what I'm sharing with you this morning is one of those passages which really has spoken to me. So Romans, and we're starting in chapter 8. And the reason we're starting in chapter 8 is I want to put the context of chapter 9, which we're really going to focus on, within the context of chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, and we're beginning at verse 28, and these will be very familiar and wonderful words to you, and then we go into the beginning of chapter 9. So um, long explanation, but chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it, or who is he? that condemns. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ... For the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption of sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, 
forever praised. Amen. You know, if you want to be a winner at Wimbledon, you've got to be more than just a brilliant tennis player. You've got to have more than just natural talent because there has to be motivation as well. You've got to have that hunger, that real desire to win. That something extra that drives a person to discipline, to discipline themselves and to be continually training, to watch their diet, to give up absolutely everything else. Everything in life has to be devoted to that one thing of winning, winning, winning. Talent alone is not enough. And you know, the same is true of anything in life that matters to a person. What we do, what we desire, is really down to talent alone. At the end of the day, it's all about motivation. And you know, the same is true of the church as well. The church can be full of accomplished and talented people who have very little effect on the world for the sake of the gospel simply because they have very little hunger for the glory of God. A harsh statement, but I'm sad to say there is some evidence of that even within God's church. And in Romans 9, we are privileged in these first five verses to see the motivation of the Apostle Paul. We actually capture a glimpse into the very heart of the man. And what you see here is a man, on the one hand, filled with joy, but then filled with utter sorrow. Why is he joyful? Because of all that he has written from chapters 1 to chapter 8 of Romans. He writes that we are justified by faith, that we are saved by the blood of Christ plus nothing. And in chapter 8, part of which we read... He climbs the Himalayas of the Everest of his thinking. In every single item in life, he says, God is working in it. God is saving his people. God is building his church. He even goes on to say that we are predestined, we are called, we are justified, and we are glorified. And all because our God is supremely sovereign, a God in control of everything, where not a single atom in the vast universe can escape God's careful and purposeful direction. And the super-invincibility of God is expressed in that verse that we read. In all things, whoops, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul is on a high Paul is ecstatic about what he knows about God and he writes it down because he wants us to know it too. And suddenly we come into chapter 9 and suddenly he is sad because he looks around him and he sees what the world is really like. And here his motivation comes together in that joy that he's just thought about along with this deep, sadness as he surveys the world in which he lives. Here is the heart of a missionary. Here is the heart of the evangelist Paul. We see a driving passion, a super motivation, 
And we know that Paul was a great theologian. We know that he had a tremendous experience in his own conversion on the Damascus Road. We know that he was a gifted man. We know that he even performed miracles. But here in Romans chapter 9, we begin to understand something of his motivation. And Paul has taken us, if we have read the whole of Romans up to chapter 8, he'd taken us up to the heights of biblical doctrine. He's spoken of all the great promises that are ours in Christ. And now he looks down into the depths of sorrow of men and women. And the effect upon him is extraordinary. So let's first of all then look at the focus of Paul's concern. What is it? that he was actually bothered about. Well, we read this uh, in the beginning. We say, uh, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's focus at this beginning of chapter 9 is his fellow Jews. And here we see great intensity. Paul is not merely sad, he is mourning. And he expresses here an agony of soul for his fellow Jew, for his fellow countrymen. The unbelief of his fellow Jews cuts him to the heart. He's deeply grieved. And why is he so pained over them? I mean, after all, that his fellow Jews had caused him untold problems. There'd been nothing to trouble but Paul throughout his Christian life. And they made clear what they thought of Paul. For them, Paul was a traitor. Paul had been this, this young academic, this rising star amongst the Pharisees, uh, the leader amongst the Jews their leading protagonist to all comers. And Paul had shown an extraordinary thirst for the blood of the followers of that Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified and rightly so in their eyes. And now Paul had gone to the other side. He'd joined himself to what they saw as a sect. He'd become their leading apostle, their leading light. And the Jewish leadership was absolutely furious they opposed him even violently. They opposed him sometimes. You can read about that in Acts. They plotted his downfall. They planned his death. And in short, they hated him. But you know, although Paul lived under constant threat from the Jews, we see here a Paul who is weighed down in sorrow for them. He loves his enemies. He wants to do good to those who hate him. He prays for them and he cries over them. He could have written them off as destroyers of the truth. He could have written them off as opponents of the living God, of blasphemers of the Son of God. People write for judgment and we might have admired him for his indignation for those who oppose the truth. But that's not what Paul expresses here. Paul wants them to be in heaven he wants them to be saved. He wants them to experience the love of God in their own lives. 
How can we explain such sentiments as that? Well, like us, Paul followed a forgiving God, a forgiving, gracious Saviour, who when nails were being banged through his hands and his feet, cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And like Jesus, Paul will meet evil with good and hatred with love and rejection with welcome. But you know, you and I live in the same nasty world that Paul lived in. A world full of prejudice, of backstabbing, and sometimes full-in-the-face animosity. And tomorrow at work, maybe you might just be left on a sideline because of who you are and what you believe. But will you pray for those who push you away tomorrow? Do you actually long that they will see the saving truth that you have seen? Paul here is overwhelmingly concerned for his own kind, for his fellow Jews. Paul himself is a Jew, and he has natural affection for his people. For the sake of my brothers, he says, that's how he expresses himself. But you know, of course, it's often our own kind who are most likely to charge us with hypocrisy or treachery. The most hurtful comments often come from our nearest and dearest, don't they? And these comments are hurtful simply because these people are our relations. But Paul here sees the Jews as having a very important need. For us, God has given us our family. He's given us our friends. He's given us our church family. And we just happen to be sitting in this building. Of course, the building is not the church. It happens to be a convenient place where we meet. But here we are, and here is where we just happen to be to meet together as God's family. And we just happen to be in a place called Lum. And we ha are surrounded by people who are in darkness. And we might ask ourselves, well, why aren't we somewhere else? We're in the church here together, and we're here in this area because God has called us to be here. And therefore, this area is our first responsibility. However, for Paul, it was more than just happening to be a member of a certain nation. You see, Paul's fellow countrymen were the most privileged people who ever lived. Up to that point in history, uh, Paul it reminds us of this uh, in verse 4. He says, the people of Israel... Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And you know, this catalogue of Jewish privileges underscores the tragedy of the Jewish unbelief and their rejection of Christ. These people, the very descendants of Abraham, the father of the faithful, these people who had King David as their saviour king, these people who had historically speaking seen the very Shekinah glory of God, they had seen it with their own eyes, the glory of God. It's recorded in, in, the, in the Old Testament. 
God himself had entered into a covenant with them and he'd renewed that covenant several times. He gave them the law, he gave them the sacrifices and they received teaching time and time again about the coming saviour. And the Jews received the promise of that saviour, the Messiah who would be born within them and it's to these people that Paul expresses this continual sorrow. Now, some individuals from amongst the Jews had become Christians. They had been saved. They had believed the gospel. But taken as a nation, they were very much outside the sphere of salvation. And this is the cause of Paul's agony. Paul is weighed down with concern for them. Here is the nation who stood outside the Roman fortress in Jerusalem and cried, crucify him. When the Roman governor, whom they hated, paraded their Messiah in front of them, they said, get rid of him. We have no king but Caesar. And the spiritual leaders who passed in front of the crucified Messiah, the ones who spat in his face as he was dying on a cross, they ridiculed him and they humiliated the Lord of life. And you know, to oppose Christ openly is a terrible thing. To remain unmoved before the cross of Calvary is wildly sinful. And yet Paul is distraught over these very people who did this, his fellow unbelieving Jews. And it is the privileged people of Israel who here are the focus of Paul's concern. But let's now consider the very degree of Paul's concern. Let's, let's dig down into the depth of what Paul is saying. Just how much did Paul care? How heavy was the weight? How great was the concern? Was it just a passing emotion? You know, it often is with us, isn't it? We have to confess it. There's that day when we have that burden for the homeless. We have a burden for young people. We have a concern for old folk. I have a concern for India, but where does it go? When we're personally confronted by that young person on the street, what happened to that burden? How much personal sacrifice am I prepared to put in for the likes of young people? Are we prepared for that kind of caring it would actually take for looking after older people? The sad thing is that Christians are often tempted to live on their emotions. We read books, we watch DVDs, we read those missionary letters, uh, and we are greatly moved for a time. But in terms of personal commitment, you know it's often the Christians who are endlessly romantic. We love good music, a packed church. We even like to hear from a missionary of their daring deeds from the darkest corners of the planet. And you know, we're almost on our way with them, aren't we? But to slog away week after week with the reality of church life, hitting your head time and time again against a brick wall, probably in some desperate circumstances, can we really do that? Well, we're busy people. I'm shattered at the moment. Got a hard job. Family comes first. But for Paul... This is no passing emotion. Just look at the language that he is using. 
He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Did we ever think Paul lied? He wants us to know that he's not lying when he's saying what he's saying here. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Can you swear by the Holy Spirit about your desires for the kingdom of God? You know, Paul is either utterly sincere here or he is completely self-deluded. It has to be one or the other. And you and I have to be very careful indeed before we invite the Holy Spirit to be our witness. Verse 2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Here's a man who's just come down from that mountain of chapter 8, overwhelmed with joy for all that is in Christ Jesus, and now he is sad. And you know, it's a real Christian experience, that, isn't it? The joy of the Lord, but also being sad about the lost. And Paul's life, if we analyze the rest of it, really was a medley of joy and sorrow. Those themes are written throughout his letters. And Paul here is looking at the Jews and he's feeling immensely sorry. He felt pity for them. Because when he looked at them, he looked at lost sinners. He was looking at a people who were privileged, a people who had the knowledge before them, a religious people, but they were as lost as lost can be. But just look at how great the weight on Paul actually is. And here we have the crooks of it all. Verse 3, Paul makes an outstanding, outrageous statement. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Let's just pause a moment. Do you really understand what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying to us that he is willing to find himself eternally lost if it means that his fellow Jews will be saved. Now we might wonder at that, and many people have, and many people do. Surely Paul cannot mean that he'd rather go to hell himself if that guaranteed the conversion of the Jews. Surely everything, everything in Paul's life is Christ. Paul was the one who proclaimed, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He looked forward to being with his Lord. That was his watchword. You know, this is a really difficult one for us to understand, but we're stuck with it. Because what else can it mean? I'd rather go to hell if that means that the Jews are going to be saved. That's what Paul is saying. We can't get around it. But you know, that's not the first time that such a statement has been recorded for us in Scripture. You know, actually, Paul here is a bit like Moses was many, many years before. When God threatened to wipe out the Israelites because they worshipped a golden calf, Moses pleaded with God, and this is recorded in Exodus. And what do we find? Moses says, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses said all those years before, if it means that the Israelites will be saved, then blot my name out of the book of life. 
And Paul says here in Romans, if it means that the Jews will be saved, I'm ready to go to hell in their stead. It's a price worth paying. Now I wonder, does that make you feel really uncomfortable? It does me. Every time I read this passage, I tremble. It really makes me uncomfortable. But we see here Paul in anguish of prayer. We see the very heart of Paul. We see his full-blooded commitment. Now let me just say that happily we don't have to grapple with the theological implications of what Paul has just said because God will not do it. God does not enter into a kind of bargaining with his blood-bought people. He has said, and it stands forever, none shall snatch them out of my hand. And that we can utterly rely upon. Not even the most zealous statement that we might uh, say or think, neither Paul nor Moses nor you nor I could ever actually bargain our salvation for the sake of someone else. We can't do it. God would never allow it. It's not God's way. But nevertheless, Paul has said this because that's what he's thinking. And what we must take home with us then is that Paul is willing to make absolutely any sacrifice if it means that people will be saved. He is prepared to suffer absolutely anything if it means the winning of a lost soul that will bring glory to Christ. And by knowing God's mercy, Paul has an unstoppable motivation here. He has a passion. This gifted man, this spiritual giant, overarching everything else is his hunger for the lost men and women. And he wants them to come to Christ for Christ's glory. And you know, the revival preacher says, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And the famous preacher George Whitfield was the one who literally wept in the face of those who refused to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it brings us up with a jolt, doesn't it? You see, your desire and my desire to see people around us saved is a pretty good reflection of the reality of our own salvation. Because what you do for the kingdom of God and what you do for him, what you do for Christ, must be driven by a gratitude and a love for what Christ has done for you and me. And Paul's passion leads to this reckless expression of personal sacrifice that he makes here in Romans 9. This disowning of his actual personal security in Christ. So what about those things that make you and, my, you and I feel insecure? What about the things that are here this morning? What are those things that make us feel secure? Our religious culture, the hymn sandwich, the tunes that we love. We know it's going to happen every week, don't we? We come here at the same time and we say to God, don't take that away from us. We like that familiarity. You know, there's a risk that is associated with evangelism, whether we like it or not. Evangelism, reach out, mission, it changes the way we live. It has to. And this country that we live in has shamefully rejected Christ in the face of great privileges. And we're set up here as part of God's great mission 
for this lost nation? Are we willing to lose in order to gain those who are lost? What baggage are you and I prepared to drop? You know, Paul's passion is breathtaking. We can hardly believe what he's actually said to us in chapter 9. What he muses about, what he thinks about, what he thinks he might actually be able to give up for the glory of God, for the salvation of souls. The degree of Paul's concern is astonishing. But finally then, we need to consider the returns of Paul's concern. The returns. You see, in other words, let me say, what would this life of care actually do for Paul? What were the results in his life? You see, it was of great benefit to him to be like this. It affected him. Actually, it made him more like Christ. What Jesus did, Paul tried to do. Paul, of course, could not redeem anyone by dying for them. That wasn't part of it. But, you know, Jesus was horribly treated by his enemies. And... He endured awful things for the sinners who were lost. And you know, Paul, if we read about his his life history, was reckless too. But he's prepared to follow Christ in any way he can. And he says, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Paul's behavior towards the lost is like the behavior of Christ towards the lost. And it really leaves us with a huge question Do we want to be like Christ in this? Do you and I want to be delivered from the self-centeredness that we are so tempted to follow? Let's look at Paul. He travels the empire far and near. He never goes first class. He's surrounded by dangers. He's hated. He's maligned. He's misunderstood. He's forsaken simply that some might be saved. Do you and I want to give up our remaining self-centeredness? Do we want to be delivered from an ungiving spirit? Paul loves, love overwhelms all hate, and we should do the same. For Paul, all natural hate is drowned by the love of Christ. Paul really loved his fellow Jews not because they did anything positive to him. In most cases, they didn't. But not once does he mention their murderous intentions towards him. He simply speaks of his great desire to see them saved. Do you and I want to be people of prayer? Have you and I prayed for the unconverted yet this week? Maybe we think, well, there's not much point, is there? It doesn't seem to have any effect. I mean, how successful is Christian outreach in this area of Rossendale? What is the point of putting ourselves out for non-believing people? And in a sense, you'd be dead right if we didn't pray. If we don't pray, there's no point at all. If we don't pray, we shouldn't even be thinking about this, should we? There's no point. So will you and I make an absolute priority to pray for the lost? I hope so. Because Paul's praying here in utter earnest 
for those he loves, those who rejected Christ, those that he wants to see be in the kingdom of heaven. Paul's great return then was that he became more like Christ. And that's what you and I want, isn't it? We want to be more like Christ. But the big question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, I hope that these few verses in Romans chapter 9, I hope you found them really challenging. And it leaves us wondering whether I have a missionary heart. Do I have a heart of outreach? Do I truly desire to win the lost for Christ? Do we, like Paul, have this great passion for those who as yet do not believe? Have these verses moved us so much that we will pray and pray again and pray again for the lost? Will we consider what else we can do to reach the lost? Will you, will I plead before the very throne of God that he, through the power of his spirit, will equip us to do just that? At the end of the day, it all depends what we want out of life, doesn't it? It depends on our motivation. Would you like to be like Paul? Amen.